Um, we, we're going to we're going to teach um, uh, the final the, the climax, I guess, or the final um, sermon in a series that we've uh, we've been speaking through called Masterclass. And just to catch you up, it's predicated on the understanding that that you got stuff you want to know about life. You got things that you haven't got sorted about life. You've got I don't know financial things, relational things, anxiety things. You've got questions about what's going on that you want to get sorted and, and, and you could go to a number of places, but the best place above any other place to go to is the one that created all things. The best place above any place to go to is the one who has all wisdom and who has all life and, knows and has answers. And so we began to look at the person of Jesus. And we began to look at what he has to say about what it means to be happy. We began to look at what it, he had to say about what it means to be generous. And we began to ask what he had to say about what it means to feel truly satisfied and truly forgiven. And could you possibly live in this world forgiven and free and generous and truly happy? I mean, like deep down happy, not superficial happy. And we're coming to the climax, and, and, and I want to suggest that at the heart of those questions, there is a word. There is a word that is perhaps the most important word in any language that's ever been written or spoken, which is a big statement, but it's definitely, I think, the most important word in the whole of the Bible. And it's a word that makes sense of every other word that we've spoken over the last few weeks. In other words, if you haven't got this word, if you don't get this concept, if if this is not in you and therefore flowing out of you, you will never fully experience happy. You will never fully experience loved. You will never fully experience what it means to be generous. You will do some generous things, but you will not live a generous lifestyle. You will never fully experience what it means to be forgiven, you know, really, truly, guiltless forgiven, unless you get this word. This word is grace. This word is grace. It's not a word that we use very often in our language. We might say grace before a meal. We might sing amazing grace. But it's, it's like God's favorite word to describe the way in which he operates with people. Grace. In, in the original language, it literally means this. God's unmerited favor. In other words, God loves you because he loves you because he loves you. He doesn't love you because you deserve it. He doesn't love you because you did something. He doesn't love you because you're particularly righteous. He doesn't love you because somehow you've earned it. He just loves you because he loves you because he loves you. It's his DNA. It's the way in which he operates. It's the grace word. And it speaks about love of a completely different kind. Because you and I, if because we've lived in this world for a little while, we've been schooled in love. And we've been schooled in a pretty mediocre love. You know, every sitcom, every series, every movie, every song written about love ultimately falls short of this word grace. Because ultimately, those, that understanding of love is, is transitory, it's temporary, it's unsafe, it's superficial, it's, it's shallow. It's love that is a feeling and an emotion. I, I, I feel happy. I feel like I love you because I feel happy. And ultimately, that's just selfish because you're not in love with a person, you're in love with yourself. There is this kind of weird dynamic. And Jesus wants to introduce us to this, this different kind of love. This grace 
love. And if you get this, if you get this, if you get this as the foundation for everything else that happens in your life, it will change everything. It will change your perspective and it will change the outcome of your life. The interesting thing is, it's probably the only thing in this room that unites everyone. I mean, we we may not get it right now, but at some stage we will. It's probably the only thing in this room that unites everyone. Everybody in this room is seeking, searching, desiring, wanting, needing this grace thing. That's why you're seeking love. That's why you're looking for relationship. That's why there's that ache inside you. That's why, because there is this grace gap. There is this thing that God placed in you that means that you seek grace and you want love and, and, and you'll never find it unless you find it in him. And so I want to tell you, I, I reckon probably the most famous, I'm making huge statements today, the most famous story in our world. It may be, it may not be, but we, you can email me about, about it later. I want, to, I want to tell you a story that's known as the story of the prodigal son. And I want to tell you from a slightly different perspective. And I want to suggest that actually it's going to impact a number of people in this room. And it's going to be a bit offensive, actually. Because often, you know, God is. Often God offends us offends our nature. So I'd love it if you have a Bible, if you turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, if you are not used to Bibles and you have one around you, you need to cut the Bible in half and then you need to turn right about an inch and you'll get to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Luke is, Luke is someone who, um, who's, an, who's writing an eyewitness account. He's not the eyewitness, but he's writing an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. It's really cool actually. He, gets, he, he, he talks through with us what Jesus did and how Jesus did it and what Jesus claimed and the implications of these claims. And, and, and in Luke 15, there was this really cool story that some of you will know really well, the story of the lost son. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read a couple of verses and then we're going to make some thoughts. Uh, no, I'm going to tell you some thoughts and then we're going to see what, what that does. Chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him. That's Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. So Jesus is telling a whole bunch of stories but he's speaking in front of two groups of people. Two groups of people. He's talking about two sons and he's speaking to two sons. One group of people, they, they're so bad, they know they're so bad, they know there's no possible way that Jesus or God is going to like them very much. And one group of people, they think they're so good, they're obviously so good, they're absolutely determined that Jesus loves them very much and God's for them very much. They're two different groups of people. Over this side, the bad group, we've got two categories of bad. We've got, according to the Bible, tax collectors and sinners. Sinners are just your regular old common or garden, bad, sinful, nasty people. You know, like Manchester United fans, people like that. People that you, nobody likes. Come on, preach it. Um, and... 
And then there's, there's another category, right in that category, there's a, there's a category all of their own. These are the tax, these are the scum of the earth. I was trying to think of who they might be today and I didn't even want to go there because I probably offend a whole bunch of people. But these are the people that nobody likes, the tax collectors because they collect taxes and because they collaborated with the Romans. So there's this bad group of people. Nobody's going to like this group of people. There's no way Jesus likes these groups. And then there's this group of people who are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Notice according to the passage of scripture they are muttering. Do you know what I've discovered? Very religious people often mutter. They're just muttering. They don't like things. They're really quite offended that people who are nothing like Jesus, like Jesus. And Jesus, who is nothing like them, seems to like them. What is he doing? Is he condoning their behavior? I mean, they're doing stuff that everyone reckons, reckons is pretty bad stuff. So what is Jesus doing hanging out with these kind of stuff? And then Jesus tells this story about a man who had two sons. And obviously and intentionally, he's trying to say, there was one son that was a bit like this, and there's another son that's a bit like this, and both of them have a grace issue. Both of their issues is an issue of grace. Both of them don't understand this fundamental word, this fundamental concept in the universe that if they got it and if they understood it, it would change everything for them. It's God's favorite word, this grace word. There was a father who had two sons. And then Jesus starts telling the story that many of us will be familiar with. He said there was this son, the younger son, and he goes to the father and he is completely outrageous and completely disrespectful. He says to his father, I want my share of the inheritance. Now he might as well have said to his dad, I want you dead. Basically, I want you dead. Because if you're dead, then I can have your cash and your cash is more valuable to me than your life. And back in the day, everyone knew that the the father would have to liquidate some of his assets because he had to give one third of his estate to his youngest son. It was just an outrageous thing to to, to say and do. And, And the father's heart is broken, isn't it? And those of you who are parents know that the father's heart is broken. Because I'll tell you what parents do. Parents give their life for their kids. They bust a gut, they taxi service, they pay money, they pay money. Some of my girls are here tonight. They pay money, they taxi service, they sacrifice their stuff, and every time their heart breaks. And then one day one of your kids turns around to you and says, I I reject you, I hate you, I, I want you dead. That destroys a person, doesn't it? And the interesting thing is that that everyone in the room, everyone in the room, everyone who Jesus is speaking to, both those and those, they're all offended because they all understand what it means to be a father or a mother or a son or a daughter. It's just outrageous, but Jesus has done something genius because he has everyone exactly where he wants them. Everyone is now listening. What's he going to say? Because, because he wants to shine a light into their lives and say this is so important because this is about grace. And he's, he's saying something to you and me. Let me tell you what I think he's saying. He's saying, do you know what? Every single one of us are predisposed to run from grace at some stage in our lives. Every single one of you in this room are predisposed to run from God, to say, God, I don't need you very much. I'm perfectly happy on my own. Maybe it was because church sucked 
or a chapel sucked, or you couldn't believe it, or somebody who was supposed to represent God did something they should never have done, or maybe something happened in your life that was really bad, and the first and obvious thing you did was blame God and say, God, this shouldn't have happened, and therefore you said, God, I'm out of here, I'm checking out, I'm running away, I'm going to run my life, thank you very much, on my own, and you run away from God, and it breaks his heart, but he lets you, let me tell you why he lets you. Because forced grace is not grace. Forced love is called something else. It's not love at all. And what he wants is a relationship of love with you. And you have to come to that yourself. And so he lets you go. And so back to the passage, not long after that, the, the youngest son, we read this, I love this. He, he gets everything together, one third of the wealth, and he sets off to a distant country and there he squanders his wealth in wild living. I love that phrase. He squanders his wealth in wild, wild living. I mean, honestly, I, I, I don't know whether this happens for you or if it happens for me. I think, goodness me, one third of a rich man's wealth. What kind of party could you have? I mean, just imagine for a second, what kind of things could you do with a load of wealth that you just going to blow in just a few? Maybe you don't think that. Don't think too long. It will probably end up pretty bad. But, but that's what he does. He just goes, I'm done. I'm going to have a blast. It's going to be incredible. I'm, 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 I'm off. And then there was a severe famine, we read. And he began to be in need and he had nothing left. And he hired himself out to a citizen of that country. And he had to feed the pigs. Now, remember... Jesus is speaking into a Jewish audience. Feeding pigs was like the, the scummiest job and the scummiest place. You couldn't eat a pig. You didn't want to touch a pig. And he is feeding a pig. It's something else that you and I need to understand. Listen, this is going to fall hard and it may be offensive, but listen carefully. When we run from God, our lives begin to unravel. Not, not now, maybe, not tomorrow, maybe, maybe it's going okay for you, but at some stage, your life will begin to unravel because you were made for grace and you're living outside of grace. Let me tell you, when you put God in the rearview mirror and you drive away from God, you don't just drive away from the philosophy of God or the, the perspectives of God. You also drive away from the perfections of God and the character of God. And so, so when you put wisdom in the rearview mirror and you drive away it's not surprising that you end up doing stupid when you put love the, the author of love and the originator of love and perfect love in the rearview mirror and you drive away it's, it's not surprising that you begin to look for love in all the wrong places may feel like love, but it's not really love. It's not surprising when you put the author of purpose in the rearview mirror and you drive away that you find yourself ultimately purposeless because you were created for him by him. And your life begins to unravel. Here's the really sad thing. What I discover is this, that, the, that all the people around you that you love and care for, they begin to get hurt by the shrapnel of your busted life. That, that's, what, that's what happens. And he, and he lets you go. Not to pay you back, but to bring you back. Now, here's the thing. If the story finished then, the crowd, you know, remember these guys here who are the sinners, and these guys here who are the religious dudes, they would have gone, what a great story. 
What a great story. You know, it's like karma. Not that that's in the Bible. But it's like karma, you know? What goes around comes around. This is the universal law. If you dismiss the father, you break the rules, you're going to get your comeuppance. And so they're probably sitting there going, pigs, yes! Pigs, yes, yes, yes! This is amazing. He couldn't have got worse, far country, brilliant, justice, 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 justice. He's going to get his just desserts. But it doesn't finish there. It doesn't finish there. The guy, our younger son, he comes to his senses and he goes, do you know what, my dad's rich. And living in the father's house, although I stuck two fingers up at him and ran away, living in the father's house was actually quite a cool thing and this sucks. So I'm going to go back to my dad and I'm going to say, dad, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but would you have me back as a slave? And he starts to move back and the people are slightly disappointed listening and then they think, oh no, but this is good because they knew something about uh, Middle Eastern customs that we don't know because we're not 2,000 years old and live in the Middle East. That they knew that in small villages in the Middle East, the elders would run the village. And the elders would sit at the village gate and they would talk about affairs and they would basically run what was going on. And there was a little custom called Kazeza. Turn to the person sitting next to you and say, Kazeza. It sounds good. Okay, so there's this custom called Kazeza. And, uh, and what Kazeza meant was that, that someone would come to the gate who had, been, who had rejected the village, who had somehow upset and offended the village. And the elders would meet the person at the gate and they would try and repel them. In some circumstances, they would take a clay pot and they would smash it into smithereens and say, your whole life committed to the village is now destroyed. You are no longer part of us. And they would say these words, you are no longer worthy to be called a son of this village. And they're thinking, this is going to happen. And then the Bible says this, but the father, the father, the father who's been offended and the father who's been shamed, the father sees his son in the distance. Do you know what? However old you become, however bad your eyes become, you know the walk of your children. And he looks and he sees and he pulls up his skirts. He wore a, a long robe. He pulls up his skirts and the Bible says he begins to run towards the son. Why does he run? He runs because he loves him, but more than that, he runs to get ahead of the elders at the gate. He runs so that he might be the first person that greets the son. He runs to get ahead of the shame that is coming. He runs to intercept. He runs to make sure that the first thing he sees is grace. The first thing he receives is love. The first thing he receives is acceptance and not rejection. That is grace. That is grace. When you take one step to turn back towards the Father, He begins to run towards you. He begins to run towards you. And people are shocked as they're listening to this story. And then it gets worse because the father meets the son and he says, the son starts to rehearse this thing. I'm no longer with you. What was your son? I'm a slave. He says, don't be so stupid, you muppet. You are my son and you'll always be my son. And he gets a ring and he puts it on his finger, reinstating him. He gets a robe and puts it on his back and he puts sandals on his feet. He says, you will not be a slave. You will be my son. Do you know what? Failure is an event. It's not a person. It's a moment. It's not, it's not an identity. And this father, this grace father, is the father of the second chance. 
and the 752nd chance. And there are some of you here who identify yourself as younger sons. And it's time to come home to grace. And until you live in grace, you will never truly live. And, and very quickly, there is another son. We don't talk about the other son very often when we teach this passage of scripture, but there is this other son. And this other son, according to the Bible, is really hacked off. If you've got your Bible open, verse 28, the, the older brother is angry. He's in the field. He calls the servants and asks them what's going on. And they say, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf. They didn't dance like that. But he said, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered, listen to this, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. There is this son who is just as lost. He doesn't understand grace either. I, I've worked really hard and he's really angry. And you know, the, the, first, the first sign of older brother gracelessness is that when things don't go right for you, you don't just get sad, you get mad. Because you deserve better, you worked really hard, and you, because your relationship with God is transactional. If I do good things for God, then he's supposed to do good things for me, and he's supposed to work out for me, and if it doesn't work out for me, then I'm going to get really annoyed, and I'm going to reject, and I'm going to point the finger, and it's going to be hard. God owes me something, and you don't get grace. He has been with prostitutes. <laughs> Says the um, older brother, I mean, Dad, sorry to push your sensitivities. I wouldn't say this in front of Mum, it's a bit embarrassing, but he has been with prostitutes. Prostitutes, do you hear? Prostitutes. Verse 29, all these years I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your orders. He, he totally misunderstands grace. He's, he sees himself as a slave and a father is an issuer of commands. And he misses the whole point. I, I am so saddened by the amount of people I find in churches who are positionally sons and daughters, but experientially slaves. They've been freed to live life in all its fullness, but they live life in all its boundness because they don't get grace. I find it fascinating that the father treats the son, this son, in exactly the way he treats this son. He comes out to him and he says really quickly, he says, my son, not my servant. Guys, listen, you are not primarily any title that you have been given, any role that you have, any qualification that is yours, any dress size that you, any number or whatever it is. You're not any of those things. The bank balance that you have, primarily according to God, you are son, daughter. That's who you are. He says, look, my child, you are always with me. My ambition for you is not stuff. My ambition for you is not success. My ambition for you is we. You get to be with me. I get to be with you 
From there flows everything. You have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe who holds the world in the palm of his hand and has a plan for your life that is better than the plan you currently have for yours. That's my ambition for you. That's, That's what I'm going for. That's my dream. All that is mine is yours. I'm not angry with you. God says, I'm not angry with you. I'm not angry with you if you're a runner or if you're a striver. I'm not angry with you. I love you. You know, God's got bad press. I think if you went onto the streets today, gave people a microphone and said, if God exists, what's he like? One of the, one of the descriptors would be he's quite angry. I think there are things God gets angry about. They're probably the things that you get angry about as well. Injustice, poverty, inequality, all that. All that kind of stuff. But his DNA is love. He is not angry with you. He loves you. And he's desperately trying to get you to understand grace and to bring you home. It's now about time to come home. Two sons are here. Older brothers striving and driving, trying to be right before God. He says, I don't need that. Stop living f- for Jesus. Did I just say that? Stop living for Jesus. He doesn't need you to. Start living with Jesus and you'll live like Jesus. Stop living for Jesus. Stop trying to do the right thing. Stop thinking there's a formula to doing this Christian life thing. The only formula is get to know Jesus. Let him into everything and let him flow out of everywhere. Stop driving and striving. It will kill you and it will kill people around you. Come home. Come home. You will never find the love that you seek. You will never find the life that you want. You'll never be the person that God wants you to be until you get grace. Come home. The Father's field is fun for a moment. Don't let me tell you it isn't because that will be nonsense. But ultimately it will unravel. Come home. Come home to grace.